Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. Um, I'm your host, Darren Mooney. Joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm very well, Darren. You're getting off to a fantastic start. Um, I know. Uh, very professional operation um, we have here. I'm hanging in there. Um, excited uh, for this one. Excited. Yeah. I mean, I mean, nor- yeah. normally, normally I approach these things with... Um, with a sense of ennui and, and dread and why do I have to be friends with Darren and why does he make me record these podcasts? But um, to, today, um, to, to, today it might actually be fun. Uh, well, okay. Well, two things. First of all, the podcast was your idea. Um, just so we're clear on this. Um, <laughs> but yes, um, today we're continuing our season. We're discussing one of the classics of American cinema. This is Sidney Lumet's 1957 uh, 12 Angry Men, which is the fifth highest rated movie of all time according to the IMDb database it is the second highest film rated film that we have discussed on the podcast today and joining us for this discussion we have two fantastic guests from the Irish Times we have Mr. Donald Clark how are you Donald? I'm Grant thank you uh, hello gang hello um yes and the gang also includes John McGuire from the Sunday Business Post how are you John? How are you doing Darren how are you doing Andrew how's it going? We're very well thanks we didn't we didn't come up with a name for our gang yet um, four angry think- men <laughs> Four angry men sounds yeah. good. Yeah. Um, which actually brings us nicely to the film that we're discussing today, because what we did was we've kind of been wanting to have the two of you on for a little while, and I kind of I think I joylessly suggested Tarkovsky, if only because the last time myself and Andrew discussed a Tarkovsky film, uh, it did not go particularly well, and we thought we'd like to have some experts on to help us with that. Um, but you guys actually suggested this movie instead, Twelve Angry Men. I'm kind of curious about that. When we have guests on who request movies in particular. What was it that drew you to 12 Angry Men? What was it that made it a movie that you guys wanted to talk about? Well, Darren, I think this emerged from a conversation you and I have had um, in relation to this podcast uh, over several years, whenever we chatted about this thing. Um, I I think it's a fine film. It's interesting in all kinds of ways. It it, um, represents a certain point in um, American society. But I was particularly interested in talking about it because of its bizarre position in this poll and in other polls, but in this poll in particular, um, it's a remarkable thing. It's a and, and it's a very hard thing to explain. This is the only film made before 1960 that is always, always, constantly in the top ten of the IMDb 250. As you mentioned, it's in the top five this week. I think it's usually in the top five. It's certainly usually yeah. kind of middle of the um, somewhere towards yeah. the middle of the top ten. Uh, and I think that's that's just as I say, is generally remarkable. If you pulled any halfway informed person off the street um, who hadn't seen this list and asked them which film they thought would satisfy that criterion, which would be the film from before 1960 that was always, always on lists like this, I think they'd go a long way before they arrived on 12 Angry Men. I think they'd probably say Casablanca, It's a Wonderful Life. Gone with um, the Wind. Casablanca. Gone with the Wind, exactly. I mean, Casablanca is 49 when I checked. It's a Wonderful yeah. Life is 24. Gone with the Wind is distant to 165, maybe because it's not regarded as acceptable <laughs> anymore. Um, Citizen Kane is done at 97. Psycho was at 40. I think all those films would come up before you got to uh, 12 Angry Men. Um, if you asked anybody who was any, you know, halfway informed about these things. Um, I mean, it's interesting. And then if you go and look at, for example, um, the Sight and Sound poll for comparison, which is, you know, the, the highbrow, pointy-headed poll that comes out every 10 years among film critics, it's not in the top 100 there. Jaws is, for example. You know, so it's not like, it's not as if the list is entirely full of, 
Tarkovsky, as you were talking about earlier on, and Renoir and all those people. They've got Jaws in there, but they yeah. haven't. They've got you know they've got Goodfellas in there, for example, but they haven't got Twelve Angry Men, the top one hundred. So I thought it was very interesting to talk about the film's virtues, but also to try and come to some kind of understanding as to why it has that staying power in these lists and other lists should be said among largely American members of the public. Yeah, and also that the AFI list it tends to feature quite prominently as well, and particularly in sure. terms of, say, courtroom dramas and subsets and things like that. It's notable, again, we talked to them in the podcast quite a bit about this in terms of kind of representation of older films. You mentioned the, the film before 1960. If you want another film before 1960 on the list, you have to go down to number 19 to get Seven Samurai, Akira Kurosawa's right. film from 1960. You mean we could have been, t- um, again- been talking about Seven Samurai this evening instead? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Oh, we've, unfortunately, oh, we've already right, covered okay. the Seven Samurai. Um, ah, no. Yeah, yeah once, slim pickings, once, I'm afraid. Only the top ten are left. Once we're finished with the top 250 movies, we'll, we'll, we'll move on to uh, doing doing the same movies again. With okay, things. that's a good idea. Until we die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, a bit like Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, but no, yeah. just a... Okay, anyway. <laughs> Hi, oh. Now, I think, John, I think Donald is on to something when he's talking about why this film is the way it is. And I know that he has mentioned uh, the fact that it's on the American school curriculum, for instance, and that it's taught in what their equivalent of a civics class might be, and that it holds that place as being an educational film or a film that's tagged as having an educational merit. But it, I think it's it, that in and of itself is interesting, but it's not enough to counteract the way the IMDb voting system works and the weight that's put on certain titles by certain communities. And when you're washing against the tide of, let's say, Avengers Assemble, just to pick a title, 12 Angry Men's place in the educational system isn't enough of a buttress on the other side of that. So there's something deeper at work here. There's something deeper at play that allows a film to maintain consistently a position on a, an aggregate list like this, which is voted on by members of the public for such a long period of time. And I think it says something more, it's really a film about American values, and we're going to get into that, but I think it speaks more to the American sense of their of the values that they aspire to uh, rather than the values that they actually hold. And as such, it's much as much of a fantasy as The Wizard of Oz is, and probably serves a similar kind of function in the American educational system. This is what we could be. This is what we aspire to be. It's not, it's not really, this is who we are. Uh, and as, you know, as a dream, as a fantasy, it, it, it fulfills that function for them. It holds up a flag, even though when we, and as we'll talk when we get into the film, it really doesn't do any of those kind of things at all. Well, that's the thing. Again, it's kind of interesting you mentioned there in terms of kind of aspirational American values. A lot of the films, particularly a lot of the older films, and again, as you've noted, the film kind of appeals to a certain demographic. I mean, you joked about Avengers Assemble. It's notable that the only three films to have broken into the top ten in the past five years are the two recent Avengers movies and Joker. Yes, Joker, um, to have broken into the top 10 of the IMDb list. So it has a very certain demographic. And if you look at the weighting in terms of by decade there, it's notable that, you know, there are 30 and 40 films from the 90s, from the 20, and, you know, from the 20, 2000s, the 2010s. When you drop back to older decades, it becomes, the field becomes a lot thinner. And you probably notice that scrolling through yourself as well. And again, the films, the older films that do tend to appear are those films you kind of alluded to. Films like It's a Wonderful Life, I think Donald mentioned is around about 24, for example. But you 
you also have a couple of other Frank Capra films we've covered, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And it does kind of capture that sense of America as it sees itself reflected kind of on screen. And I do wonder I, if there's a sense of that. that oh, sorry, Andrew. Yeah? I, I always find it funny when you say that a certain demographic and the, the certain demographic <laughs> that you're describing is kind of like, you know, men in their 30s like comic books, very online, have an interest in the IMDb 250, <laughs> sound kind of American. Um, <laughs> Who could I possibly be referring to, I wonder? Um, but yes, yes, that's okay. Uh, it's interesting, Dan, what you say, that you're talking about how, you know, how hard it is now for, for a new film to sneak into that top 10 and the fact that they do tend to sneak in, then sneak out again um, shortly yeah. afterwards. And what struck me when you're talking about that is that one of the things people have said about the Sight and Sound poll, quite justifiably, is that it's decades ago that it settled into a canon, and that canon is now kind of, you know, carved in stone, um, and it's, you know, Vertigo, and it's Citizen Kane, um, and it's uh, Tokyo Story. And, you know, every now and then something will sneak up. But when the thing sneaks up, it tends to be from a long time ago. I mean, something like, uh, um, for example, Man with a Movie Camera. Laventura made a big jump right the there the last 10. time, I think. Was it Laventura? Well, 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 no, well, no Laventura was an interesting one. And Laventura was right at the top for like 10 years, shortly after it came out. And then just went... Oh, it went the other vanished. way, yeah. Okay. I mean, in, 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 yeah, in the early 60s, Laventura arrived like a rocket in this small, insulated world and was suddenly kind of the new Citizen Kane, or be an Italian film. But what I was getting to was, it's interesting that the IMDb top top, top, top 10, well, top 10, if not so much top 250, seems to kind of done that as well. I mean, I'm looking at it now in front of me, and it's like it, the Shawshank Redemption's always there, the Godfather is always there, the Godfather Part Two is always there, the Dark Knight is always there, Twelve Angry Men is always there, as we've said. Interesting, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which is another kind of I love the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, but another slightly surprising one is always there. So, I mean, one thing we we be talking about here is the way in which um, mm. canon set in and and yep. uh, inertia sets in, and suddenly things become films become the things that belong in these lists, and it's very hard to shift yeah. them. Absolutely, and again, myself and Andrew kind of talked about the tendency of when new films arrive on the list almost by surprise. It's it's interesting to wonder if there are people sitting there waiting with their finger over the voting button because what you'll see is an, an old movie creep in because it hits a certain threshold in terms of number of votes to make the list. It'll catch people by surprise or a new film will come in that maybe doesn't fit the idea or image of the 250. So in terms of older films and things like Cagney's White Heat, for example, which came in around about 200, catching everybody's surprise a couple of months ago and then dropped out almost immediately. But in terms of, say, new films, films like, to pick an example, Get Out or Moonlight, which were on the list for a matter of hours, each um, and you kind of wonder like in terms of that is are there people on reddit or on forums sitting there just waiting to click angrily if something like that happens watching the list constantly waiting for it to update and making sure the update is um correct as it were is that a rhetorical question we know oh. We know oh. how online culture works. Of course, oh. there are. Hold on. The question is how many of them there are. That's the question. Hold on, Darren. Let me let me just check Reddit and find out. Oh God, it's um, terrible. Um, why did you make me do that? Um, Sorry, John. Uh, no, what I was going to say was twelve million angry men, and I've no doubt that that's how it works. But <laughs> I have a very limited patience with lists, and uh, my own personal lists are personal. But I would never. I've never voted for an IMDb 250. I've never engaged in that kind of online aggregation. 
because averages are average. You know, it's not, there's not a huge amount of, and I don't mean to denigrate your podcast, your well-respected podcast, but there's not a huge amount of value. No, you're in good company. Meaning out in making your calculus to, to try to come up with a number of where something fits. If you like 12 Angry Men or if you like The Godfather Part 2, good for you. It doesn't mean that uh, the list itself doesn't really have a huge amount of value to the films. It really only has a value to the community that is engaging in the voting. And to, you know, if it's published on IMDb, which is a massively popular site, it has a value to the site as content and as something that people talk about. But the films remain undisturbed by the, all of this goings on. It doesn't make them any better and it doesn't make them any worse. Maybe it allows uh, films that wouldn't be as widely seen to find an audience amongst this community. But I doubt it. And if you look through the numbers, there aren't a huge amount of surprises in there. Yes, the positions on the list may change, but the films themselves, the titles of the films and the kind of films that they are, aren't terribly surprising. So, uh, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not slagging you off, but there's not a huge <laughs> amount. There's not, there's not a huge amount of value. I don't see, I, I don't see why it adds. You know what I mean? I, 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 I'm not sure what it, what it is for. Yeah. Uh, well, don't worry, you're you're far from the only person to have right, the fair enough. Almost, at that yeah. point. I Almost think even ourselves guess. and Andrew, yeah, yeah <laughs> and even the two hosts at various points have kind of agree, would agree I, entirely with the. Statement. I don't think I, I I I know I certainly have never voted on the IMDb two fifty yeah. either. I, 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 I mean, think we've had one guest who's admitted voting on it, and even he stopped voting. Oh, I have. But isn't this just an accumulation of the ratings of films, right? Yes, yes. Oh, well, well I've rated films. I mean, I mean, I've said it a long time ago, but in the early days, though certainly somewhere in there, there are there are ratings by me. Um, I don't know if you can click on that and, and, and uncover me in, in, the, uh, in, in the deep data. But uh, no, I, I voted on a few. But I'd say, yeah, having said that, I can't remember voting for one of those things for a long time, but I have done. I like it. No, I'm not slagging off IMD because I like it a lot because it means that I don't have to sit at the end of a film and jot down the actors names and the uh, the names of the characters that they had in the film and to me IMDB serves an essential function in that I don't have to pay as much attention as I would have done in the days before the IMDB. Well, to but, be fair, I don't think any, any of us were viewing before then. Uh, you know, and I get to go home earlier. I get to go home like three minutes earlier. But... The point remains, <laughs> the films stand extant. And 12 Angry Men was a popular film in 1960, and 1970, and 1980, and 1990, and it's in, it has endured. It was in people's top five or top ten long before they were voting for it on IMDb, and long after IMDb has been swallowed up by some other and uh, these things are less important. So... Let's. Why don't we talk about the film a little bit? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, with, and with that, Darren has three questions for you. <laughs> I do exactly right on cue. <laughs> and the first question, and I sense I'm probably going to get a more sympathetic audience from Donald for this one. So I'm going to start with Donald. Uh, the first question is: um, Do you think that Twelve Angry Men belongs on a list of the 250 greatest films as much as a list has any validity well, I at all? It's in, a, it's in a category of films that I don't particularly. Object to being there, we put it that way. Um, but I mean, I would, in my own head, I would tend to, towards including films that are 
less theatrical. It's one of the things that springs to mind about this this picture. Um, I mean, like Marty, um, uh, uh, it began as a TV play, and it kind of looks like it. And it became a the theatrical piece uh, after that, and it's been a sort of staple of rep ever since. Um, and whenever I watch it, I I feel the urge kind of break it open a little and 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 open the characters up and kind of make them be closer to human beings. Um, none more so than Henry Fonda's actually, who's kind of insufferable. I mean, it's after after about five or ten minutes of Henry Fonda, you kind of start siding with Lee J. Cobb, you know, just the <laughs> sob that he is. Um, but as a film that stands for certain values and has had an undeniable influence in American culture, I think it's fair enough that it turns up um, in a list like this. Um, I mean, to come back to what John was saying, I think that uh, uh, it stands, I think, p p perfectly effectively for an ideal in American society. And it stands for what Rumpel of the Bailey actually used to refer to in one of his recurring lines in that television series as the golden thread that runs through the history of our legal system, the presumption of innocence. It stands for that as a principle, which I think is an important thing that people may respect and it even has it has some criticism within the film of how that is honored and not honored with the american judicial system and it seems to me that, that those are things that are worth paying attention to so i have no good objection to it appearing on a list like this though as you may come to discuss in a minute i wouldn't put it on my own list all right and john Having just explained to us in great detail why the list should not exist or does not have any well I, this is assuming like i would i would hypothetically yeah, I feel like I'm Henry Fonda. This no, podcast. you're I'm you're the to... judge at the beginning who's just pro forma reading out some statement that he needs to tell every well, single that's, jury. That's exactly what um, I was. That's, that's, uh, that's the character exactly that you I are. was going. I was going to talk about Twelve Angry Men as a model of economy because from the opening scene in the courtroom, as the judge sums up, it's a life or death situation. The jury have a decision to make: guilty, and they execute him; innocent, and he walks free from a murder charge. That's one scene in the courtroom. That's the only time we ever visit the courtroom. It's the only space, the only other space that we visit, except for the very last shot of the film when we're on the courtroom steps. So the first count in the jury room, 11 to 1. Boy, oh boy, one of the other jurors says, there's always one, and which is the summation of the theme of the film in a single line of dialogue. That's literally one of the very first things that's said one of the very first lines of dialogue any of the characters deliver. Uh, what do we do now? Somebody else asks. And jury number eight, dear Henry Fonda, replies, well, I guess we talk. So that's the summation of the plot of the film, the rest of the film. And in two lines of dialogue, in three minutes, we have what Roger Ebert used to call what the film is about and how it goes about it. And that, to me, they were five minutes into the film and that's the economy of the film uh, in a nutshell. And to me, Lumet, Lumet, I would call him Sidney Lumet. I don't know if it's Lumet or Lumet. Uh, oh, sorry. He wasn't that terribly experienced at the time that he came to make 12 Angry Men. But what he had was a script that had an extraordinary focus. And if you're paying attention, and 12 Angry Men even on a list like the IMDb list, is a cl very closely analysed film. And everything about it as you watch it, and it's worth re-watching in that frame of mind, lends itself to that kind of analysis. And those two distinct scenes tell us uh, much about what's going to follow. But from that point on, 
you'd be hard pressed to identify another scene at all in the next 90 minutes. They're played out in an approximation of real time. The story unfolds in front of us. We have to make tough decisions about character, about morality, about prejudice, about the individual backgrounds that are being brought to the decision around the table as the individual jurors explain them. And they're the products of the society that they live in. They've grown up in that society and have devoted extraordinary resources to ensuring murderers are brought to justice and that justice is delivered. And all of that is brilliantly, brilliantly condensed into a couple of minutes, a few short scenes, tight, terse dialogue, no flowery language, no lawyer speak, nothing, just the judge, quick quick uh, summation, and we're into the, ju into the jury room. And that's admirable. And as somebody who likes short films, uh, as in feature-length films that are short, and who admires economy in it, uh, you know, this is, it's really kind of the template for how to get things moving very, very quickly. Um, all right, then, in the spirit of keeping things very, very quickly, what we're going to do is we're going to blitz through the three questions, simple yes or no answers. So, John, assuming the list has to exist, do you think that this yeah, sure, should be on that? Yes, I do, I do. Okay, cool. <laughs> and Andrew, yeah, yeah. Andrew. Well, it's great. Yeah, I feel like the foreman in the film. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about it a little bit, Darren, first. <laughs> I don't have a knife to yeah, stick but, into my um, desk. No, um... <laughs> <laughs> No, we'll um, well. Yeah, I, I, I agree with with Donald that it is um, dramatic and that, that that is maybe a fault with it as... Well, sorry, sorry. I, I, I don't know if, if, if Donald was saying that, that, that he would agree with that point, but I would certainly kind of um, uh, uh, make, make that observation as well. Because it feels like it even took the, a lot of the stage direction from 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 the play in ways that are sometimes um a little bit awkward for for a um for a cinema like as as we as, as we would kind of be used to to seeing it but i do agree that um that the economy of of it, it it's only eight minutes per <laughs> angry man um, statistically speaking yeah so like 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 it you, you have to commend it and there's no there's no fat on it um which is what we're aiming for with this podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah. The, the, um, it's 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 a very sweaty movie. <laughs> uh, which we're also apparently aiming for with this podcast. Yeah. But no, um, no. So I, very, I, very... And I and I would put it on the two. Uh, sorry, as as in I, I I have no problem with it being on the two fifty, and um, I think it's right that it is. I think it's very edifying and important. Yeah. Um, yeah. um, and again, that, as we kind of discussed, reflective of a certain set of American values. A couple of things very quickly, just in terms of, of what you mentioned there. Uh, Lummet's direction, and I think John was entirely right, this was his first feature film. He'd done a lot of work in television. He started as a child actor. Um, and famously, this was incredibly economically directed. The budget was absolutely tiny in terms of production. Apparently, uh, it was Fonda himself who kind of pushed for it. Fonda read the script for the television episode, wanted the movie developed, and basically said, okay, well, if I can get a tiny budget and a bunch of actors who will work for negligible paychecks can we do this shot in 19 days and apparently Lummet's big innovation was that he would use lighting setups so he would ha shoot each of the individual jurors in their chairs film every scene that they had to deliver in those chairs and basically just like sweat them up between takes which I always kind of admired um I, I didn't know that that's yeah. very interesting yeah um which again remarkable work of kind of efficiency in terms of what, what's going on 
Oh, damn it. I was going. I was going to see if if when the toilet flushed, if you would, if you would keep talking. What kind of clown show is this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. We are as professional as ever, apparently. The Supreme Court. Um, um, what's going? What is going on, Andrew? Have you not seen? Have you? Are you unaware of this um, Supreme Court justice who who was uh, flushing the toilet during a? A um a hearing on no anyway never mind. I feel like yeah I feel like I didn't get that reference. And he, that had a, he had a radio mic on and he, had, you, he retained his radio mic on when he left the courtroom uh-huh. and they were able to hear him broadcasting <laughs> his um his ablutions. But the the lawyer <laughs> the lawyer was entirely unfazed, which which made me want to like there, there there are several points where you come to your kind of concluding argument, and I was wondering. Is you just gonna keep going? <laughs> um, no, I'm sorry. It was just a it was a little experiment. Um, okay, well, thank thank you very much. Um, so I am slightly phased, but yes, I, I would agree with it being on the list. Then would be where I would kind of go from there. And then second question: Would it be on your own personal list, Donald? No, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, being brutal about it, but I don't think it would be in my top five Sydney Lumet films. To be honest, I'm going for Lumet as well. I think I'm, I think there's I think a hard T. I think. Um, uh, We've learned I mean, on this podcast a... whenever guests suggest the pronunciation something they are probably <laughs> right. Uh, um, well, it's I wouldn't trust either me or uh, either I or John on this, but I have used the same pronunciation as John. Um, I put it behind Network. I put it behind The Verdict. Serpico, The Pawnbroker, uh, all of which are excellent films, it should be said. So, I mean, if I was in my head kind of feeling able to include some blue metal in the 250, um, I'm afraid it, it, it would unlikely, unlikely to be on that list. Um, I mean, largely for the reasons that I said. I mean, I look at it and I think, this is kind of barely a movie. Um, and again, actually, in terms of that, mentioning that the... Um it's interesting that there are a couple of other films on the list that have the same origin story that began as television plays, particularly as standalone episodes of uh, anthology shows. So Judgment at Nuremberg, for example, ah, okay, which is yeah, another, yeah. Um, and again, you can put this word in inverted commas if you want, but another important movie in terms of yeah. defining sort of American process, American identity, and kind of American exceptionalism is on right. the list as well. Probably also on the curriculum list as well for their high school. I, I'd imagine it's, it ticks a lot of boxes. Um, and and then John yourself would this be one of your because you mentioned no I, list. No, no okay just okay cool I don't think so uh, like Donald says it's it's not the best Sydney Lumet film it is uh, a film that's worth analyzing and it's worth discussion but I mean there are a lot of films and even there's a lot of films from 1960 that would be uh, that would be dearer to my heart let's say than Twelve Angry Men not that it's there's anything wrong with it in fact there's a lot right with it. But uh, no, it, it wouldn't be on either list, my favorite Lummets or my favorite films from the era. Okay. And then Andrew? Um, yeah, I, 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 I kind of would put it on my 250. I, I, I think I would. Um, I think it's a movie that I saw um, quite kind of early and it made a big impression on me. Um, and, and while I was kind of, I suppose, uh, agreeing or kind of sl- maybe slagging it off slightly, was saying that... It feels very kind of theatrical. Um, I, I I also kind of like uh, some movies that have that uh, that that sort of sense to it. Like I, I really quite like Glen Glen Gary Glen Ross, um, which which are uh, what's what's it called Death, Death of a Salesman, um, but um, 
which 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 again feel feels feels less like a movie um to me anyway but i would say but but i would say it's actually not just the fact that they don't open it out. I mean, in someone like Glengarry Glen Ross, um, it is pretty much, you know, a point of camera yeah. play. <laughs> um, it's it, it's it's not just that. It's actually there are several moments in it where, which looking at now, I don't think Limit would have would have done 10, 20 years later. The particular one I remember, which is I think just kind of excruciating, is the point. The bathroom. Uh, no, it's the point when um, uh, it's Ed Begley, isn't it? The the, the racist. Yes. Yeah. Turn, it, it's Ed, number ten. Yeah. Yeah. Ed Begley goes off on a particularly uh, um, extreme racist rant about like you know, a boy like that and so forth. And one by oh, one, yes. they turn up, they stand up and turn their backs on his, yeah. on, on, on him and on the table. So at the end of, of the, of the shot, they're all standing around the table facing outwards. And, and, you know, I know this is, this is not, this is not a realistic environment. It's not a piece of neorealism, but like nobody would do that. <laughs> you know, I'm shouting at the screen. No, I mean, it work, would work fine in a play where that sort of coup de theater, uh, excuse my French, um, uh, is, Appropriate, but in a in a film, I, that's one of the moments where I felt, ah, no, 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 man, you gotta you gotta work a little bit harder into making this into a movie. Um, I, you know, I'm I'm, I'm actually, you know, I, I've less problem with that notion of not opening it out, and obviously, by definition, you can't you can't open this out. The whole point of the thing is the high concept that it's set in one room. Um, that's more of an issue that I have where you're using coup de theater that just don't work on cinema. Well, this is my theory on it: is that for every uh, drama social realist drama set in a hammer factory in the Urals that the Soviets were making at around the same kind of time. <laughs> the Americans were up to the same kind of propaganda work. Now, maybe not as blatant and maybe not as overblown, but it, they were still at it. And when people talk about the propaganda of the Cold War, they immediately think Soviet. But there was more to it than that. And 12 Angry Men is, is not just a reminder to Americans of American values and a response to what the communists were doing in communist propaganda. But it's also a rebuke to the misinterpretation of American values in the so-called House Committee on Un-American Values and their Hollywood blacklist and Joseph McCarthy's separate communist witch hunt. These were both blatant farragos that had descended into farce. Definitely, yeah. But they took a lot of filmmakers, actors, writers and directors' careers with them. And they blackened the names of hundreds of others. So there's a doubling of Lumet's intent and a powerful anger in that expression that while the Soviet judicial system was joined to central government and rotten to the core, the American system is separate. And in 12 Angry Men, we don't see any, like I was saying, we don't see any images of the crime being committed, the police investigation, the prosecutor defending counsel. We don't see any courtroom argument, any of the work of the court at all, really. And none of these things are really being called into question. They're outside the scope of the film, but they're not exactly taken as true. It's the interpretation of the facts that are at issue. And Henry Fonda, the everyman, Henry Fonda, juror number eight, he never says the guy is innocent. He only says, like Donald said earlier, that there is a reasonable doubt in his mind. This doesn't make Fonda good and all the other guys bad, even though some of them are bad. It's The film is really only interested in how these men, they're all men as it happens, argue the facts as presented in the court as a jury, not the facts themselves. The context of the film is the system. And the Valentine, the love letter that Lumet was putting together, is to the system, to that judicial inquiry, 
that happens in a courtroom. The principle. It's a principle, exactly. Yeah, and I think I'd say two things to, to expand upon that. I mean, one is the fact that I think, to be fair to the script, I think it, it whereas it honours that principle, uh, it honours that concept, um, the uh, Rumpel's golden thread that runs through uh, British justice, um, it does make clear the deficiencies and how that's that's some deficiencies and how that's operated in the American system. I mean it's it's made quite clear, for example, and I think all the jurors end up kind of coming around to this view that he's got a duff lawyer. That I mean I mean they speculate quite crazily about why he might have a duff lawyer, but it seems as if like the case, I mean, the case is made that Henry Fonda is asking the questions that his defence lawyer should have asked, and at several points they say the guy is stuck. And obviously, you know, you get a representation of racism in the American system from the Ed Begley character. Uh, the Jack Warner character um, uh, demonstrates people who just don't really care that much. Um, at, uh, at so that's all there as well. I mean, the other thing which is interesting, I think, we just kind of relate to this, and um, I did some very, very rigorous research. In this and I looked up a site called Wikipedia, which you may have heard of. Um, <laughs> oh, <wow>. Which uh, <laughs> so I was there for oh minutes on end, um, you know, coming 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 up with this. But there's a um, uh, there's a rival uh, podcast to this, not nearly as uh, as exalted, uh, on Columbo. And one of the things they do at the end of each Columbo episode is they is they say. Would they have would Columbo have secured a conviction on the evidence that he has? And that's quite a fun conversation. And sometimes they say yes, and sometimes they say no. Ridiculous. I mean, like you know, he's come up with like some guy's shoelaces are laced the wrong way. That's not going to going to work in court. Um, and there's there's an interesting piece of uh, uh, they quote on the Wikipedia page from uh, Sonia Sotomayor, the um, yeah. the uh, Supreme Court judge, um, who firstly says she really liked the film and is one of those you know just as you know some people came. It inspired her to go into law, I believe. Is one yeah, of the arguments yeah. That she made. And I'm sure there are people 20 years later who watch The Verdict, you know, another um, uh, uh, limit film, more cynical about the system, it should be said, uh, who nonetheless... Uh, primal fear in my case. Okay, I mean. all right. Uh, it came into law that way. But she also... What said, went wrong, Darren? What movie did you watch while you were studying law that, that, that uh, talked you out of it? But, I rewatched Primal Fear. But basically, when it comes down to that Columbo podcast conversation, she basically gives it well, one and a half thumbs down, if not two thumbs down, and points out the fact that basically they're having conversations that juries shouldn't be having. They're speculating wildly. Um, she points out the fact that and there's a scene where, this is no spoilers, but midway through, where Henry Fonda produces a knife from his pocket. The whole point of this knife is a very rare knife, the knife that was used in the murder, and he managed to buy one on his street relatively easily. That's, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to go out and investigate privately as a juror. I mean, it's almost like that. And they also, they restate various sequences as well um, yeah. at certain points which is also very much outside the remit it is well, I, and, she, and she also points out like I mean there are several bits I really pointed some things that in terms of the abstractality are ridiculous I mean the most ridiculous point in terms of the arguments is the argument about the eyeglasses uh, later on in the argument they point out the fact that did you notice that this lady this witness had impressions in her nose <laughs> where eyeglass would have sat and they all turned around and said yeah nobody would notice that I mean, it's crazy I mean they're sitting no. kind of, they're sitting yeah. in a jury point. no I didn't notice that uh, and, and Sotomayor you know, points out that as well I mean, whatever about it being unlikely 
likely, she says, that is not what a jury is supposed to be doing. A jury is not supposed to be coming up with deductions of its own in the appearance of somebody. But that's a whole other, whole other story. Well, she also directs any juries that she's on not to pay any attention to 12 Angry Men, which I think is a lovely touch. <laughs> yeah. um, a couple of things, actually, very quickly to come back to uh, in terms of stuff. Very quickly, in terms of what John mentioned and the House on Americans Activities Committee, uh, Lomond himself was actually very briefly dragged towards in front of them. Now, again, he wasn't actually blacklisted, but there was a photo of a communist gathering that was alleged to contain himself and his wife, and he had to testify to that. Uh, but actually, Lummet throughout his career, and particularly in the late 50s, actually made a point to work with writers um, who had been blacklisted uh, off the records, and so was very much opposed to that. And again, you can arguably say that there's a recurring theme throughout his work about justice and injustice. You mentioned The Verdict, for example, but even, say, movies like Serpico and things like that, which are very interested in kind of the, the process there. And... Uh, sorry, uh, Donald, when you mentioned the filming technique and the very theatricality, and particularly that sequence with juror number 10, where everybody goes and stands their back up, that actually got me thinking about, we mentioned the kind of its place in the 250, and sorry to bring this back, John, uh, <laughs> but the, the place in the 250 which got me thinking is that, and again, I noticed this when I did a bunch of my own research for this podcast, for this discussion. Do not allow to, on... to do according to Sonia Sotomayor. <laughs> yeah. According to um, Supreme, not, Supreme, not bring out any information. Court does not allow that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, I noticed that, like, uh, this is, and again, John kind of alluded to it, a very much a kind of discussed and explored text. But it's a film that is frequently used, actually, for teaching cinematic technique. Which right. Which got me kind of interested, particularly in, in that conversation we had about theatricality. And particularly that, say, to pick an example of that scene with juror number 10, where everybody stands up and turns their back which is a very theatrical thing but the way in which say Lumet pulls the camera back in order sure. to give you a full view and again lots of discussion of his technique in terms of say eye lines eye levels throughout where the camera tends to start high above the drawers and then goes to eye level and then kind of gets low angle and very kind of pushes inwards and Lumet himself has talked about the fact that he used different camera lenses as well to get different effects and make it claustrophobic what I was thinking was like in terms of its place on the 250 I suspect from that level of discussion that I've read on it, this is probably a film that is very much taught in film school. And I'm wondering if the kind of people who are voting on IMDb are most likely to have seen older movies like this in film school. And maybe that's why it has the the, the kernel of support that it has that say It's a Wonderful Life doesn't. I, I wouldn't have thought there's that many people voting. There's 1.3 million lawyers in America. And I'd imagine there's some kind of a... Some class at some point, maybe <laughs> yeah, first point, week of point, first year, sir. where they all sit down good and watch point, 12 sir. Angry Men. <laughs> That's also, and that is also. so, yeah. But don't blame the poor yeah. old kids who wasted their lives going that to film school. I would, that is I would, actually. I wouldn't have a go at them. I, I think, I, I think there's a, <laughs> there, there is, yeah. in, in my own research, which was extensive, uh, before we sat down this evening, <laughs> I did come across, and I've been trying to find it there now. I did come across a really well written article in the American uh, An American Law Journal. I can't maybe it might have been the Georgetown University Journal. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Where they made a very compelling argument that the jury in Twelve Angry Men got it wrong, that the kid actually did do the murder, and that they. Right, like right, you right. said about the absolutely yeah henry fonda okay. at the okay. end okay 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 i'm gonna stop i'm gonna stop this now i am declaring the spoiler zone we're gonna talk about why the kid <laughs> yeah. did the murder all right john lay it on us i am not a lawyer i need to i need to, I need to clarify very carefully i am not a lawyer and this is, does not constitute legal advice but do you play one on tv I, I i can't find it i would read it off the screen if i could find it but i can't find it but it was a pretty good argument i mean he had they'd heard him argue with his father 
They had, they literally had the knife. He ran away. I mean, etc., etc. The evidence all points towards a conviction, and that there, that twelve angry men might actually be a miscarriage of justice, or a ju- watch, we're watching the jury come to the wrong decision for the right reasons. Which, well, I think John, it, it remind me of a point that I thought we watched the film again this week, which is that it's supposed to be, and it's largely largely is about um uh, uh the presumption of innocence but the point the the, the point that fonda keeps making is but it's possible but it's possible and that's not the argument i mean the argument is not that it's possible the part that whether it is reasonable to doubt that mm-hmm. this could have happened those are two different things i mean it's po- it's possible that aliens could have committed the murder but that's you know that's not another argument there is the deleted uh, sorry there, there's the delicious scene, scene at the end as well when Henry Fonda, Fonda gets into the car uh, with the boy and they drive away. Um, <laughs> but look, yeah. in the end of the day, and I, this was my impression of what I read in when I read the journal article, was that the film really isn't about whether he was guilty or innocent. That's not what, that we're not interested really in that. What it's about is whether or not these 12 guys with individual prejudices and personalities and neuroses and disorders can figure out how to work together and come to a decision. That It goes back to what I said right at the start. When Fonda says, now we talk, that's the scheme of the film. Explain. That's all they're doing. And, you know, I think he did it, but I'm not, the, I'm not, I'm not a member of the jury. So <laughs> that I have to trust their decision. The, Ameri- the, the whole thing being about civic responsibility, the basis of democracy, the honor of civic responsibility, the pillar on which Rose wrote the play and builds the story, and Lummet stages it. And in 1956-57, America was under extraordinary threat. McCarthyism was a horror show. The civil rights movement was being violently opposed. It was in its early stages. It was being violently opposed everywhere. And the people were being swallowed up by unprecedented mass prosperity. They were rich. They didn't care about what was happening in jury rooms anymore. They had fridges and cars and holidays. And 12 Angry Men stands as a warning to Americans Mm. to remember your responsibilities, stay on your guard, stick together, question that herd mentality that McCarthyism was trying to put out, or the nation will fall. And if one black kid gets away with a murder under particularly strange circumstances then so be it. As long as the system stands, that's what the film is about. So a couple of, couple of quick things there. Um, the first one is that I read a similar argument about the allegation of guilt uh, of the child, of the kid. And apparently the thing that blew it away for, for most legal scholars is the idea that he lost an identical knife to the one that was committed in the murder and just couldn't happen to find it and produce it. That's apparently the silver bullet. There's no getting around that fact as part. Hang would argue. And also... <laughs> And also, um, it's it's been suggested statistically that actually the way in which hung juries operate, there's no way that a single hung juror can can convert an entire jury based on studies of that as well. And there's a couple of other interpretations that I find kind of interesting. Some stage adaptations of the play, because obviously there have been a variety of them over the years. But as, as time's gone on and people have gotten a lot more cynical, particularly in the 70s, make a point to play juror eight as somebody who basically manipulates everybody else in the room 
for no other reason than because he can as a sort of a power play. It's it's what Donald remarked there. It's the idea that he doesn't believe he's innocent. It's just like, can I change these guys' mind by the application of pressure and slow manipulation of the group? And again, it's kind of interesting to contrast I, that. Sorry. I, 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 think, I think it's an important point. Like, obviously, no, none of us are disagreeing with it, but the... the I, that the it is not about what happened; it is about the idea of the thing, and and that the the, the that the administration of justice is the firmest pillar of good, which is which is which is the first thing we see, as 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 the movie is starting. It's above the yeah. You get that reverential pan up and, to the courtroom sort of sort of roof basically, and then the pan down inside. Yeah. Well, also, it's the very last the very last shot in the film actually has pillars in it you're on the you're on the courtroom steps they've got <laughs> yeah. the columns they from the palisade or whatever's in front of the courtroom it literally the whole roof is being held up by the pillars of the film that we've just watched it's and and trust us listeners if you haven't yet seen the movie you have seen that shot in every other courtroom drama ever after the, the simpsons fact. must have done it 30 times so <laughs> yeah. yeah you've seen it and i i think I think the point about that, though, is important and it's kind of, it's easy to miss because principles are actually a thing that's very difficult for people to kind of get along with, if you know what I mean. Especially, I guess, on that side of the Atlantic is, is there, there, or maybe I'm wrong. I mean, Darren will know a bit better than I will, but, but the, the idea of kind of a rules-based system versus a a principle based system and people just wanting to be kind of like told like what to do rather than how to think about well no the the american system the american system and again sorry this is where i put on the wonky hat this is the difference between the american system and the european systems european systems are typically built around the other way around isn't it yeah yeah they're built around penal codes and stuff like that they're very kind of like again the european systems tend to be built around very codified laws that are very clarified whereas american systems tend to be built around principles also the idea of rights on the continent typically come with responsibilities so you'll typically see say good samaritan laws the idea that you have an obligation to help somebody if you can whereas in the states the idea of rights create an invaluable circle around an individual where you can't enforce an obligation the state cannot force you to do something if you have a right a right is basically a negative space in an american constitutional idea the right to bear arms means the state can't tell you that you can't bear arms is typically how it's considered to give an example um sorry that was that was a very weird very outdated bit of kind of constitutional that was very no no can would it, it is very interesting would, would you believe darren that i first saw this movie in film school um <laughs> You you would not believe that because I know nothing about film. I I I, I saw this in a in a legal studies class. Ah, yeah. So the the um it's 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 I I suppose it's it's an interesting way to get people thinking and talking about uh, about these issues, which are very important. What I want to talk about there just is, is cultural context, because John kind of alluded to that there, and particularly in, say, 1957, uh, which is notable as the same year that Perry Mason started on television as well, and you had this very renewed interest kind of in terms of court, in terms of legal process as well. Again, we mentioned Judgment at Nuremberg. It came out around the same time a couple of years later, where you had this idea on television and in film of reiterating the importance of that system. And again, the idea of tying it back to, say, the end of the Second World War and the idea of the importance of justice, and then ju- 
juxtaposed with what was happening with the House, you know, on American Activities Committee kind of happening around the same time. And I think this is probably why I like this movie a bit more than, say, the, the Capra movies that I picked out. It's a Wonderful Life or Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is because this is a much more abstract film. This is an, a film that is much more about that level of principle in that I think It's a Wonderful Life and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington are movies that are largely about isn't this person wonderful and therefore should be allowed to do whatever he wants because Americans are fundamentally decent. Whereas I think that if you look at, say, 12 Angry Men, the logic is more along the lines of the system is worth protecting. It's the idea that this process we have is inherently sacred. And again, we notice that like the jurors don't actually get names. The The closing scene where Davis reveals his name um, is basically, that was an addition for the film. But the jurors for most of the runtime are known by their numbers. They're anonymous. And in fact, in terms of identifying them, either you identify them as actors, um, as most say screen fans would, or you identify them by their views, their philosophical positions. Number four is the analytical one. Number 10 is the race racist one. Number 11 is the one who came to America and believes in the American dream. And I find that kind of an interesting thing as well in terms of the the kind of the idea of the movie as a morality play in terms of American identity. Because it's very much, it's a very abstract one, if that makes sense. It's very much theoretically removed. And we talk about that in terms of the idea of it not really mattering whether the kid did it or not. It not really mattering whether the crime was committed. It not really mattering. Again, and and that being kind of, I do find that an interesting juxtaposition, as kind of Donald alluded to, with the level of attention that's paid to things like the dimples on a person's nose to indicate that they were wearing glasses. And and kind of, there's an interesting contrast there where it's it's like, we're not really arguing about principle, we're arguing about specifics of an argument that you didn't see, which is, is kind of, I find an interesting contrast. I think also one thing we haven't mentioned uh, is just uh, one other explanation for its resonance is the fact that it, it it uh, uh, offered a very neat and reusable structure. It's one of those films that has a structure that's constantly being parodied by television and other media throughout down through the years. I mean, something like Rashomon is another example at um, the Kurosawa film, which is, you know, it's a beautiful little idea. You have an incident that happens, you have four or five or many, many versions. It is retellings of that incident and it transpires that they're all wrong in one significant way or another. This is another kind of like beautiful structure. Like you, ha- you have 12 people in a room, one disagrees with the verdict and then one by one by one he persuades the others or pushes, puts the others in a position where they might re- re- um, reevaluate their, their opinions. And it's turned up, I mean, one thing that immediately struck me looking at, at this again is that um, there's, a, there's a Simpsons episode, the famous one, um, uh, the boy who knew too much. I think it is. This is it's our up. level. Uh, yeah, this is our level. Uh, there's a Flintstones episode. There's a Family Guy episode. But yeah. the one which I really, which I, I think is <laughs> most fascinating and most resonant, is the episode of Hancock's Half Hour, um, which was actually which was actually called Twelve Angry Men. They weren't they weren't, gonna, they weren't making any uh, any attempt to pretend otherwise. It was broadcast. I mean, like two years after the film. I think it's about fifty nine. 60 um and in that case it's it's a it's a it's a it's it's fun in all kinds of ways because surprisingly if you know anything about hancock you'll learn that actually tony hancock turns out to be the henry fonda character which is rather unlike tony hancock because the hancock character because hancock is like essentially kind of being a little lazy and duplicitous but but it's also interestingly very pompous um which it's why i think he actually does quite work quite well as the henry fonda character and it's most significant that episode because it contains 
what I would argue is one of the most famous lines in the entire Hancock um, uh, universe, uh, beginning on the radio and ending um, on the television, probably only exceeded by the, the blood donor line where he's asking for a, a pint, a pint that's almost a whole arm, um, is the point in the middle of this argument when Tony's getting more, Hancock's getting more and more passionate and trying to convince Billy turns right and says, does Magna Carta mean nothing to you? Did she die in vain? <laughs> and, I, and I think if nothing else, if nothing else, the did she die in vain? It's <laughs> reason alone for 12 Angry Men to exist. Well, you'd see, um, you'd see echoes of 12 Angry Men in the Icelandic film, Grimmer Harnikson's The County, which is going to be released next week, oh, yeah. where you go That's from right. 11 to 1 to 9 to 3 to, you know, 6 all to uh, eventually everybody join. I mean, it's a perfect structure. It's a perfect way to to notch off progression through a story by having people raise their hands or write their verdict on a piece of paper and to count them up. And to me, it's that's the stroke of genius. And no wonder it's been parodied to death. And no wonder it's because it's just perfect uh, for, for you to get from everybody being on one side of the room to everybody being on the other side of the room. There's no smoother way to do it. Uh, and more economical way to do it. So I think it works. The real question, and the question that's been puzzling me in all the thinking that we've been doing about this film and the talking here over the last hour, why is it 12 angry men? Why isn't it it 12 righteous men, 12 fair men, 12 judicially conscious men? You know, why are they angry? What are they angry about? Uh, It's it's, it's really sort of four or five angry men, isn't it? And then, you know, then like, you know, a a, a dispassionate man and, uh, you know, a careful man. But yes. why twelve angry men? Is it just a title? Is it just a, does it just sound good in your ear? Or... I think I think it does. Yeah, yeah, I think it does. I mean, because it's it, it's not it's as you're right, John. It's not at all. It's really not accurate. But it's just a good title. It is a good title. Trips yeah. off the tongue. But yeah, it is I a question. So. Right. What are they angry about? Is it that? I my theory is that the the anger is that the what they've just been through, the potential to pervert what they've just been through. It was reflected in things like McCarthyism and the HUAC, uh, the, the potential for the system and for the very constitution that the uh, that the rights that they have to a fair trial, uh, to reasonable doubt, uh, to be the presumption of innocence, all of those things are under threat. And the more they sit in the room for the 90 minutes and talk about them, the more they realize how easy it is for the power that the court has and the power that the state has to pervert the course of what they have just gone through. I think it's it does sound good, and it is a very powerful title. And I have a 12 Angry Men poster here somewhere, and it looks great on a poster. <laughs> but, you know, they are actually angry about something. There is something that in that uh, that Lummet doesn't explore directly, but is obvious in context in 1957-58 to anybody who would have sat down in front of the film. They would have recognized it. They would have seen it and taken the lesson from it, I think, very easily, much more so, let's say, than some bored high school student in 2020 would. Uh, it's, mu- it's much more current and much more uh, in context. It was much, It had a greater political charge than it does nowadays. Because who knows? Who knows what has a political charge nowadays? I was going to ask John actually just on that point because you mentioned like what has political charge. 
do you think today you could get away with a, a movie that earnestly believes that you can reasonably convince people of a right argument? And again, this is something I think we talked when we talked about, say, Knives Out and its view of kind of like America at the moment. Do we believe or do we think that America as a kind of a culture or society believes at this moment in time that if you reason things out, if you make a point cohesively, if you reach across the aisle and make an argument that is truthful and honest and compelling and appeals to those higher virtues, that you will reach the person opposite you because i mean even in this in the, even in this movie juror 10 is cowed eventually juror 3 manages to overcome his own issues and admit that he's wrong uh, like this is very much a kind of a, a somewhat utopian film in terms of the ability of people to persuade other people and the idea that truth will out and again like in the age that we live in i now, think i think i think the thing that the thing that lummet had that very few contemporary directors have and the filmmaking that America produces at the moment doesn't have a huge amount of is the respect for the audience's intelligence. And 12 Angry Men is a film that asks you to follow along quite closely with a complicated argument. And it is consistently respectful of that intelligence, the audience intelligence. And I don't think that, I don't think I see a huge amount of that in contemporary American cinema. Yes, independent American cinema, but not in contemporary studio cinema. Certainly not. Certainly not in studio cinema driven by a star who's also a producer, who's literally the reason that they're all gathered in the room to make the film in the first place. Fonda is a very interesting actor and a very interesting individual. But 50 odd years later, even his best work, even the great films that he made, nobody really cares about them all that much. This is literally the only Fonda movie. If you ask people for uh, to pick a Henry Fonda movie, this is the film that they'll pick. That it's interesting that we don't have actors like him very much anymore. Well, I, I think, I don't know, I mean, I'm not saying he's better as, as good an actor, but I mean, if you think about who would play this role now, I mean... Tom Hanks! Only one, exactly, you're waiting. There's only one there's name! Only, there's only one it. name, isn't it? It's, 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 it? Tom Hanks is the only person who could play that role. I'm not sure I'd agree with that, because I think that if you were doing like the Tom Hanks version of this in 1957, you cast Jimmy Stewart instead. And again, maybe this is because I came to um, I came to Fonda through Once Upon a Time in the West, and so don't have that level. I think at the time he's seen as being this kind of embodiment of American virtue. I think there's a level of ambiguity to him that's that's kind of different from Stewart. I think if you put say Stewart in there or you put Hanks in there, this yeah. becomes a much more wholesome sort of picture. This becomes a much more sort of stereotypical picture. I think there's an ambiguity there in terms of Fonda, perhaps. I think um, if if you want kind of that level of ambiguity, then you you would you would cast Leonardo DiCaprio, because it it would it would have to be somebody who's who's uh, who who speaks you know very kind of like righteously, but can can maybe come across a bit pompous. I don't know why I've certainly suddenly started going after Leonardo DiCaprio lately. Um, but, but, um, <laughs> I, I I think we spoke about him recently. The point, the point, the point about this being utopian, though. But, uh, your, your initial question, your initial question, Darren, was, what would this film be like today? And I, I'm not sure if yeah. America makes these kind of mirror movies anymore. I don't think they, they make the films that reflect their self-image uh, quite as blatantly or quite as clearly as Twelve Angry Men does. I don't think they do that anymore. Uh, the yeah. near, the most recent example I could think of is. A Leonardo DiCaprio movie, actually, The Wolf of Wall Street, I think, is a very holds a mirror up to a very specific kind of American uh, crooked yeah. entrepreneurism. And in the same way as what they're looking at here is 
legally based, constitutionally based, is an issue of rights. It's like a Superman comic of the time, almost. You know, it's that clear and blatant. Uh, but well, I think there are there are examples. I mean, I think I mean this is not to demean Twelve Angry Men, but you think of something like Green Room, and uh, uh, sorry, not Green Room, Green Book. Green Room would be interesting to Paris to make with you. Yes. <laughs> but I think it's like, I was wondering where you were going. Yeah, I'll try and work out some some comparison between those two. Brian. But something like Green Book's an interesting comparison um, in that that's not about a legal principle or something else. But it, but I mean, one of the things you're asking there, one inherent in your question, Darren, is could you make a film that is that is arguing for the, the upstanding principles of American society and arguing that in some sense that uh, that someone could be won over in that fashion, and that's kind of the that's kind of the Green Book arc. I mean, it's like you know this sort of layabout who's kind of a sort of soft racist um, who basically gets persuaded um, over, uh, by by being friendly with a black man <laughs> um, to to. I mean, that's that's a, in some ways a much more well, it isn't an always a much yeah. more naive and sentimental film in terms of that aspect of the film in terms of someone opening up to the right the 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 the, the correct just justified principles of american society and being persuaded um from one way of thinking into another i think after 60 odd 60 odd years of perversion and all that america has been through i think they'd be laughed at if you tried to sincerely address the kind of issues that 12 angry men addresses a contemporary film would be laughed at if they did that with the sincerity and the compassion that lumut finds we're in a different, totally different world now, and I don't think uh, I don't think you could reasonably expect that level of sincerity uh, and simple simple communication. I don't think I don't I just don't think they'd buy it. I'd kind of I I tend to agree with 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 Donald that there that there there are a lot of especially with the Academy very popular uh, movies with the Oscars when it comes to being very. Um, sincere and making these kind of uh, the the kind of point that this sort of movie makes. I th- I I think the kind of movie that 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 Hollywood isn't as good at making these days that it was quite good at making in the eighties and even in the nineties is the more kind of like biting satire, like the kind of Robocop or Starship Troopers, or th- those sorts of like popcorn um, cinema that everyone was going out to see, but that had this kind of poison pill in it, where it was saying. Um, there's something very wrong about America, which is kind of what this uh, movie does as well, in 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 a way that is packaged in a very in, enjoyable manner. Like I, I I think John's point about what are they angry about is a very good one, and it's not even one that I even considered when I was watching the movie. I just thought that they were angry because they. The thing that they were taking part in, they didn't think would take as long. Yeah. Which is, by the way, something that our guests busy men. Yeah, um, but yeah, yeah, and 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 I don't, I don't think it, I don't, I don't think it, I think we think of this movie as utopian, maybe because we're looking at it now and thinking about kind of American society now, our our society more broadly speaking, and the the polarization that we've seen. Since the time this movie was made, I, I, um, I, I, I mean, the, the, it was polarized in a sense, America, because they're 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 essentially twelve um, men. First of all, there's no women, and 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 that there 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 is there is a there is a person of color, but he, he's kind of uh, the accused. Um, so while while 
while there while there was certainly kind of inequality there wasn't the same sense of i suppose um disagreement on values that 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 perhaps there is this day with the with, with the exception of stuff like mccarthyism but the, the i don't know that i think i think there, there there there's a greater sense now of there being a difference you know what i mean and 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 of this movie being utopian, where whereas my sense is that at the time it would have been a kind of a um, a reminder of things that they already knew, but that they should uh, value more. I was I was thinking more even in the postmodern sense, and the idea of there being a truth that you can reach or determine or prove or unprove that will convince somebody else that their point is wrong. And again, that's something that I think you see increasingly in politics, particularly in say American politics, where there's a belief that right. if you can prove that say Donald Trump is lying, if you can prove that he doesn't know what he's talking about. If you can prove that he's corrupt, that he's taken money, that he's involved in X, Y, or Z, that he's implicated in this crime, that you will somehow convince the person across the aisle to turn their back on him or that, you know, to give up or to acknowledge that they are wrong or to see the right way forward. And I, I wonder if you could even get away with that optimism today. Um, well, no, he's he's the man. Sorry, I, I suppose we, we don't want to talk too much about Donald Trump because we could be talking yeah, all day. But um, he, he's a man who has said that he could he could shoot a person on the street. Yeah. And 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 uh, he would probably get away with it, and people would still vote for him. Um, and I I I I would like to think that that perhaps was not true in 1957. Yeah, that that's um, the question. Is like, do could you get away with a movie that would believe that today? But I think we're kind of reaching the end. Uh, and again, as you've alluded, we've trapped our guests in this room talking about this subject <laughs> for more than long enough. You did it, Darren. Darren, can I just add one 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 quick point, um, a sort of superficial point worth making in terms of things to recommend this film by. Uh, this is, I say, quite a superficial point, but I think it is. It's one of the great that guy movies. Well, by that guy, I mean oh that guy who is in such and such. In terms of, yes. I, I mean, I don't yes. any other film which has so many great character actors, Henry Fonda aside, none of whom were movie stars, but almost almost yeah. all of whom are familiar. Mm. Martin Balsam, Lee J. Cobb, yeah, Jack Klugman, of course, you remember from Jack television, Klugman, television yeah. in the seventies and eighties. Uh, Jack Warden, uh, Ed Begley, all these guys, all uh, cast from literally the one theater yeah. class that uh, Lumet we literally went to an evening class and cast from the, the guys that turned up uh, Honda Honda aside uh, yeah. they all came out literally out of the one evening one one movie star movie 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 star and out of 12 and yet more or less all these guys worked incessantly and were kind of part of anyone's childhood and adolescence if they grew up watching 70s television and certainly if they grew up watching films of the era. Yeah. And also very quickly actually in terms of kind of the influence of the film it's worth noting that it's been cited as one of the examples of Hollywood moving towards the New York school of production shifting away from the Hollywood studio system picking say the 50s where you had again and then this is this idea of television because we talked about this this movie originating in television as part of an anthology show and the idea that in the 50s there was a conflict between film and television and film's typical response was to go big cinescope go widescreen yeah. these westerns these epics these biblical films and 12 Angry Men has been cited as one of the most quietly influential films in terms terms of kind of pushing back against that to a certain extreme again kind of moving to the east coast kind of looking at kind of actors on very small sound stages a lot of the films that say billy wilder that would kind of come out in the 60s films like the apartment and stuff like that and kind of like it, it's influence there which is perhaps understated and kind of exists to suggest that maybe film and television in the 50s weren't as kind of diametrically opposed as some people would would suggest they were um i think we're about wrapping up unless there's anything else anybody wants to talk about anything you'd like to mention or discuss that we haven't mentioned already i do want to mention very very briefly the um the amount of great lines in this movie 
which 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 I guess we haven't spoken about some 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 and 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 a lot of them are very kind of like clever and biting like the the um um uh, juror eleven correcting I think it's juror ten saying um he don't even he, speak English yes yeah and it's like he doesn't even speak good English um which 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 felt very true because I remember being in America. And some Bulgarians that I was working with, they were saying, can you teach me English, but teach me how to like speak it wrong? You know, <laughs> because in school, I only learned how to speak it correctly. And I want to kind of sound um, like an American. And I was like, well, I'm not an American, but I'll do my best. Um, but yeah, the, the, the lines like, don't you don't don't you ever sweat? He's like, no. And then like a moment later, he just starts sweating. Um, yeah, no. It, it, and, it, and it was it was. It was full of them. I, lo- I love the listen to me. I have now sit down and don't open your mouth again. Um, which after a tour dance races round. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot that you can use <laughs> in conversation. Uh, very quickly, actually, in terms of uh, sweatiness, because we talked a lot about sweating <laughs> in this movie. 1957 was the hottest summer in record in New York until 2011. Oh, interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. There you go. I found that I found the article with the how the kid actually did it, <laughs> but it's too late. Never mind. How, I, I love that you've described it like the OJ book. Uh, <laughs> it's actually what actually the OJ Simpson and Johnny Cochran are literally in the preamble to the piece. Uh, they're both mentioned. Yes, uh, oh dear, no. Oh, you know he did it. Oh, he absolutely did it. <laughs> um, my favorite, and again, not one for fan theories. I don't believe this holds any water, but I kind of adore it, which is the theory that actually juror number eight committed the murder. That's why he happens to have an identical <laughs> right, rare go. That's a good one. That's, that's how he knows that he's so, so innocent, but he can't say he's innocent. So he has to kind of gradually manipulate the group into letting him go. That's one of my kind of favorite Kaiser Soze type theories uh, that I've read about it. Um, all right then. Uh, John, actually, if you can send that on, I'll include that in the show notes, uh, which would be great. Actually. Yeah, sure. No problem. Okay. Yeah, no problem. Perfect. All right. Uh, anything else? Anybody no, wants that'll to do it. Thank you so much, guys. That was a lot of fun. Thank you, Pat. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you very much, guys. We'll be back next week. The wonderful Charlene Lydon and Renuk McGregor will be joining us to discuss Sunset Boulevard. Take care, and until then, bye. Thanks again, guys. Thanks, Darren. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers. Cheers.